quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Any great broadcast journalist brings two things to their work, a healthy skepticism about people in positions of power and compassion and empathy for people in distress. Erin Burnett displays both in her nightly show on CNN and her reporting from war-torn corners of the world as she just displayed again through her work from Ukraine. She also has an interesting backstory, as you can hear in this conversation we recorded earlier this week. Erin Burnett, it's great to see you back here in the U.S. after spending time in Ukraine. How's your head after that experience? (laughs) I have to say it was really, um, you know, of all the places I've been and you know stories I've covered I've never been in a war zone before it was a war zone and seen it transform you know when you go to Afghanistan or you go to Iraq those places were you know incredibly challenged places but I was in Ukraine and it was under a lot of stress and fatigue but it was a, a normal place right people were going out to pizza people were going out to bars people were and then you were awoken by missiles landing and everything just changed. And I, I've never experienced anything like that. You know, literally being in schools, we were in a school, David, and the, you know, there's kids playing volleyball and soccer and they'd just gone back to school because of Omicron. So they had been doing remote learning and they'd just gone back there. They are after school playing. And then the next day, you know, some of them are heading for a border. I'm going to walk 30 miles. It's that transformation that I, truly struggle to comprehend, as I know we all do. Yeah, I want to talk much more about that. But I just, before we get to that story, I want to get to all of your story leading up to that. I always get pretty uh, full memo before these podcasts. And what struck me just reading about your childhood was that it seems like it sprung right from a Norman Rockwell uh, painting. Uh, You... you, (laughs) Is that is that is that fair? You know, you grew up on this farm in Maryland. You're you had you have sisters, and yeah. everybody seems to have done well. And oyster stew on Christmas <laughs> Eve, and all of that. Tell tell me about the Burnets. Well, you know, it's so funny you say Norman Rockwell because I totally see that. But you know, when you look at your own life, you never quite see it that way. So it's always good to look at it through other people's eyes. But yeah, so my parents met in New York City. Um, my father had sort of been a military kid, so he'd grown up all over, literally from the south of France um, during the Korean War and uh, North Carolina, Long Island, New York, and and Maryland, where I ended up growing up. And my mother grew up in Hartford. And she was an artist. And so they met in New York on a blind date in Quag, 
And um, the rest, as they say, is history. But they chose to move to the eastern shore of Maryland, David, because my father wanted to run for Congress. Uh-huh. And he did run for Congress. And, um, <laughs> and he lost. Then he stayed. And they stayed. Yeah. And they, they bought a farm. And they, you know, he ends up doing a lot of interesting kind of pro bono work and things like that. And they, for his, he was a lawyer. And they, they built this life together. And they actually founded a school, sort of a Montessori style school. And that's where we all ended up going to school. And it kind of grew over the years and it's still there. And so in so many ways, it was an idyllic childhood, but it was an unexpected one in terms of how it came about and how they ended up choosing to live there. And, you know, I guess, I guess ultimately when he lost that race that they decided to stay and, and build that life together. So we all ended up growing up uh, on a farm on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. When did he run for office? Oh, gosh, I'd have to tell you the exact year, but it was in the late 1960s. Uh-huh. Did he run as a Republican, a Democrat? or He ran as a Democrat. He ran as a Democrat. Hard, in, re- the, hard in the eastern shore of Maryland. Well, right. As a, as, <laughs> and it never got any easier. Yeah. So he, um, but it was funny because in this, this farmhouse that we grew up in, we would have our, our dollhouses and, you know, our little kind of play area was up in the attic. So when you go up the attic stairs on the back of the door was his campaign poster. So I grew up always seeing that image of my dad. Uh, I always joke with hair. My dad, <laughs> my dad had hair that time and then ended up with none. Those jokes are a little too close to home for me, but I get it. Yeah. So yes. um, tell me about that. Tell me about. So obviously he was highly motivated because that's a big move. Uh, to run for Congress, what prompted him to do it? Was it the war in Vietnam? What 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 was it that caused him to want to run? Do you, did you did you ever talk with him about that? Yes, you know a little bit. I think I think it was partially that, and it was also the civil rights movement at the time. Mm-hmm. And you know he wanted to he wanted to be in public service and take action in that way. He had gone to um, college, undergrad, and uh, law school at the University of Virginia. And then had studied um, at NYU and done some some work overseas. So I think he wanted to. It was it was a call to public service. Which after he lost, he ended up replacing with other things. He was very active, and I know you spent a lot of time in that part of the country, but very active with um, preser- preser- preserving the Chesapeake Bay mm-hmm. and um, the National Commission on Uniform State Laws, which sort of you know tries to focus on in a federalist system, having there be consistency across different states on crucial issues like alimony or other issues like that. So he did end up doing a lot of public service type work, even though he did not succeed in politics. Was that something that was sort of dinner table talk in your home? What was going on, the issues of the day? Yes, we were a very politically aware family, I would say for sure. Um, one of the jokes always was um, the blue magazines at the bottom of my parents' bed, which were the foreign affairs magazines that sort of gather yeah. there. I, I don't know that he read as many of them as he perhaps wanted to, but they were certainly a part of my psychological grounding was that awareness and being a part of that and watching the news every night, which for us was the McNeil Air News Hour at the time. Because mm-hmm. where we lived, we did not have cable. Um, so even now, actually, you can't get cable. You can get satellite, but not cable. So we didn't even have all of the three networks, to be honest. Yeah. With so, <laughs> yeah, we had CBS and we had PBS. And you were, so I, it caught my eye that you were uh, voted uh, uh, in your high school yearbook, uh, most likely to be a talk show host in <laughs> 20 years. So that's kind of, whoa. 
someone had yeah. real vision. What, what, what do you think caused your peers to think that you'd end up where you ended up? I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm still waiting on the talk show part of it, but no, I don't. I guess it must have been. But you know, you get some point there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I must have been. I talked a lot. I don't know, but I I do laugh about that. They they sometimes realize your your peers can know you really well. Absolutely. And you went off to uh, Williams College and you studied uh, political economy. What drew you to that? I, well, I think it actually sort of tied to all of the the you know I joke about the Foreign Affairs magazine and. Um, the travel that we did as kids as well. I just, I was really interested in international things always. And um, I, I think, and, and, and I was curious about public service. I mean, my internships were sort of, I did something for the forest service one year and for a nonprofit one year, I had those interests. Um, to be honest, um, I thought I wanted to go join the CIA. That's what I thought I wanted to do. But Williams um, at the time really encouraged sort of just a couple of career tracks. One was investment banking and one was consulting. And then there was a smaller group that did pre-med and it kind of had to fit in one of those three boxes. So that's, yeah. that's kind of where I went. Yeah. To Goldman Sachs, but you didn't stay very long. No, no, I didn't. Well, you know, what's funny, David, I'm still now one of my friends, mentors for a long time, but friends is Willow Bay, um, yes. who's now the, the dean at um, Annenberg School at USC. Yes. And she, so I had always admired her. And I, I have, I, you know, told this story, but when I was a kid, because it was hard to get media, one of the things we would get the uh, New York Times after church. My, um, my father did not go to church. My mother did. We'd pick up the New York Times on our way home. And at the time, Willow Bay was the model for Estee Lauder. And so I would always see her picture. So I had known who she was. And then when I was working for Goldman Sachs, there was an article about her in the New York Times and how she was going to Moneyline, which was CNN's business show that they were going to launch, uh, her and Stuart Varney, who's now at Fox mm -hmm. Business. And so I you know, wrote her a letter. And that's how I ended up. And you, know, you never knew her. This was just a cold letter. It was a cold letter. Yes, it was an absolute cold letter. I joke about it as a stalker letter and I saved it. And then she and I were looking at it a few years ago and just sort of like laughing, you know, at, at, <laughs> at such a thing. But but yeah, that that's sort of how it ended up happening. I wrote this letter because I had pulled an all-nighter for, I think it was the then Bristol-Myers Squibb drug company. And we were doing some sort of analysis on on something. Um, you know, merger related. And I came home and my brother-in-law and sister said, hey, did you see this article about Willow Bay? Because you know who she is. And look, she's now doing Moneyline. You know, you should write her a letter. And so I did. And then she actually responded. And you had in your head, this is really what I think I want to do. I think I want to go into reporting uh, on the industry, not, not participating in it. I think so. But I'll be honest with you, David, one thing that I realize now when I look at young people and how driven and motivated they are and thoughtful. You know, they think through so many things and career tracks and they do it so early. I did not do any of that. So mm -hmm. I feel I was so lucky in so many ways. I, I sort of went with my gut. You know, it sounded interesting. It sounded exciting. I wanted to do it, but I did not have a vision for where I was going to go or a sort of, okay, I'm going to do this and then this and then this. You know, the way I see so many young people now are so, so thoughtful about it. I, I did not yeah. come to it with that, with that benefit of thinking. I'm not sure how healthy that is, by the way, that these kids focus so, so early on career tracks, because, you know, my experience has been, you know, life reveals itself to you 
and these 30-year plans often turn out to be worthless. Uh, true. And it's kind of following your passion is a, is a good thing. But I guess knowing what your passion is is the trick. And you blundered into yours. Yes, I, that's, that's very well said. I blundered into it. I mean, I, I will say when I was a kid, you know, you talk about how to be a talk show host. So growing up on a farm had a lot of benefits. One of the negatives was that I was very solitary as a child. I love it. I would, I would, I loved it, but it was, um, but I was, I was lonely. I didn't have friends that lived nearby. I didn't have a, you know, you couldn't go bike and see friends. And um, so I, and my sisters who are my very closest friends in life, but when we were children, it was a seven and 10 year time uh, age difference. So uh, they were not there for part of my childhood because they were away at boarding school. So, um, so I spent a lot of time by myself and I would talk to myself a lot. <laughs> um, I would, you know, pretend to be a teacher and, you know, whatever my dog and cat would have to be the pretend, you know, students and yeah. all that sort of thing. They like, must a lot be of very bright. Yes. <laughs> so I think, I think maybe I did know, but I didn't know that I knew, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe my yeah. gut knew, but I, I hadn't thought about it in such an explicit way. So all you guys went off to boarding school. Why? Okay, so when my parents founded the school, the school is called the Salisbury School, and it now goes through high school. But when when we started it, my graduating class had three kids in it. Oh, my. What did I say? Yes, three. I'm trying to think, was it three or was it at one point there had been seven? It was very small. It was, it was small. Growing. I'm getting it, yeah. You, it so was no small, wonder you yeah. felt so, uh, isolated. Yes. And, and, um, and so the, the, the school in my town um, went from – sort of junior high all the way through high school. And, you know, it, it would in many ways, you know, many idyllic town in many ways, but it, it wasn't really a college oriented uh, public school. So my parents felt that they had to make uh, some choices. And at the time there weren't a lot of options uh, within driving distance. So I went away to boarding school. It wasn't far away. I'd say it was about an hour and a half away. You know, they could come to a lot of games and things on the weekends, but it was a boarding school. So you, you went and you went to work. Willow Bay, it turns out when you sent this letter, was looking for an assistant. Mm -hmm. And so luck has a lot to do with these things as well. Um, and then, uh, but then you had this sort of meteoric journey. I know I've, I saw you quoted somewhere saying it only seems meteoric if you didn't have to do the 10 years that led to the meteor launching. But you went to, uh, you went to Bloomberg. And you sent a tape, you made a tape and you sent it to Bloomberg and they hired you. Um, you how quickly did you, I mean, was it always in your head that you wanted to be in front of a camera? You know, it's funny. I, so when I was at Moneyline working for Willow, I had mentioned Stuart Varney. He was there. And I was thinking about, do I go back to business school or what do I do? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't love at first sight with the industry, okay? It, it wasn't love at first sight. <laughs> I mean, I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't like, this is, this is it. I'm meant to do it. So I was thinking of business school. And I remember saying, well, I want to be a producer. I want to do the production. And Stuart said to me, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. But trust me. You want to do what I do. And I kind of remembered him saying that. But um, when I went to Bloomberg, I don't think I knew what I was going to do. I did send a tape. It was a terrible tape. So <laughs> I don't think anyone hired me because of that. But, um, but I went and I was a writer, and, um, which I had finished at CNN before I left. I was writing. 
And, um, and, and I did that for a while. And then I ended up, there was an opportunity. It was going to be a story. And I wish I could remember more for you than this, but it was about American airlines. And they said, okay, well, you can track it too. You could write it and produce it. And then you could track it. And I did. And so then after that, I went, started uh, on air and became their stock editor. And then you, uh, you moved over to CNBC and you got there at a pretty propitious time to, to be covering Wall Street because the whole the whole damn thing collapsed uh, during your your tenure there and I remember yeah. I think you and I've met once on the lawn of the White House I think you interviewed me yeah. during the middle of this uh, uh, catastrophe uh, yeah. uh, but you 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 became a thing I mean you were you were very you know they gave you your own show very quickly um, mm-hmm. and you were quite young. How did you process all of that? I think, I don't know. I just, you know, you just kind of go, go, go and you're working and, and you're, you're, you're driven and it was so exciting. It was just an exciting place to be because, you know, as you point out, I was there for the crash and then I, but I was also there for kind of the, the boom and the, and the, the pre-crash, right? So it was sort of mm-hmm. an ebullience and then the, you know, the crash itself. So I think I, there was just so much excitement within all that. And, I, you know, as I mentioned, I love, traveling, traveling and international. And I always wanted to do you know, international affairs and politics, but the money part of all of this is so central. I mean, goodness knows we see it now, right? With the sanctions and the military, train, yeah. all of it. And so I, I got to travel the world for them. Um, so most of the time, you know, doing business stuff. And then as time went by, also some, you know, international stories like the Nigerian bomber or the, um, the Arab Spring in Cairo. So it sort of transitioned, but it was so much of the the ability to travel and, and you know I remember planning like okay where do we where should we go next what is the next place that people want to see that there's something exciting or an adventure happening and so I just remember it being this feeling of infinite possibility. I remember also the coverage of you at the time by people who watch the industry and these kind of. Well, you can characterize it yourself, but the whole money, honey, street, sweetie, the implication yeah. being that you were there, you know, I mean, Wall, Wall Street is a very testosterone infused place yes. uh, and that you were there, you know, sort of as eye candy or something um, that must have been irritating. It definitely was irritating. And I'll say, you know, I had. I had a, a lot of good friends there at CNBC at the time who have remained good friends. But I also had the benefit of a partnership with Mark Haynes. And, you know, Mark was obviously significantly older than I was and had the ability when I came in to truly treat me as just there as, you know, whatever you want to call it, eye candy, his sidekick, you know, just, you know, just there to look good. And Mark didn't. Mark treated me from day one as a partner and we became an incredible partnership. And I really credit him for so much of, of that, you know, that you, cause you can, you can come to the table and, and bring a drive and an ambition and a everything, right. You get a chutzpah, all of it. But if you don't have people around you who enable it and who believe in you, sometimes that's not going to be enough. And I have always been lucky to have those people. And one of those people was Mark. Maria Bartiromo was there uh, as well uh, yep. at the time. And, and 
I don't know. Did you feel as if you guys were being were were sort of competing, pitted in any way? We definitely were, and I and I, you know, gosh, I I don't know, and maybe as life goes on, I'll get more even more perspective on it. But I think there is a desire out there for there to be a woman versus woman thing. I hope that that's lessened over time. But when I was there, that was certainly a part of it. You know, Vanity Fair did an article, and it was about me versus Maria. And it's like, why would that be the, the article? You know, I mean, I don't. So that I, I think there was there was a desire for that sort of a narrative. And I, I think that's lessened over time. I hope that's lessened over time. So women don't have to go through that. I don't want to fuel that, you know, but I do wonder, and I asked this to Biana Golodriga, who I did a podcast with recently and also uh, worked with her. Uh, sort of, you know, what your sense of where she's gone here, because she's become quite, uh, political uh, in mm-hmm. her commentary, and it's well, you know, I'm not going to characterize it, but I'm wondering what what your sense of it was, and and did you have that sense then that that was likely where she would go? I wouldn't have had that sense then. I always thought her greatest strength was that she was a hard worker, and I feel that she lost her way. I mean, clearly, she's lost her way. But I, I don't really know. You know, I'm not obviously personally close to her, but I think it's sad what's happened, to be honest, because she was a very hard worker. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Everything leads back to Trump in some ways in our politics today. He's 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 a big a specter hanging over. Or a, uh, but uh, so I have to ask you about your own uh, experience with uh, with him, because while you were at NBC, occasionally you would appear on his show, uh, The Apprentice, highly rated show, big property for NBC. You would fill yes. in for Ivanka as a, a judge uh, on this yep. show. Uh Tell me about that experience and, you know, more important than what you think about Maria Bartiroma and her evolution, uh, whether you were sitting next to Trump thinking, yeah, I could see this guy's going to run for president someday and uh, and some crazy stuff's going to happen. I will tell you, he did talk about running for president a lot. He always would say I would do better. And then there would be comments along the years um, Gosh, I remember one. He's like, I just don't understand why we didn't just don't just don't fly in and bomb all the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. Let's just bomb them all. And, you know, I mean, so this is he did have a feeling that he could do things better than anybody else was doing them. And he did have this ambition. That's for sure. I mean, it wasn't I never took it seriously when when I would hear him talk like that. But obviously, in retrospect, it all became clear that it was deeply serious. Um I yeah. just have to tell you, I yeah. got, got interrupted for one second because I have yeah. limited interaction with him. But he did call uh, when I was in the White House and and suggest that he take over the operation when we had the deep sea water spill, uh, the deep sea oil spill in the Gulf. Oh wow! He said, you know, the uh, that admiral down there, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy, which we now all know is a sort of a, uh, <laughs> yeah. a a preface to some insult. And he said, because I don't think he thinks, I think he associates being a nice guy with being kind of a sucker and a 
but he said, uh, you know, uh, I know how to run big projects. Send me down there. And so I had to finesse this because I didn't think we were going to put that uh, him in charge of that. Uh, and we were pretty close to solving it. And I said, I think we're pretty close. Why don't we talk like in a week or two? And I called him back and I said, you know, I think it's taken care of, but thanks. And then he and then he pitched me on building a modular ballroom for the White House, uh, which was a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but he clearly felt like he was the guy who could get this oil leak stopped. I mean, we had the best minds in the world, including a whole team of scientists working on this. But anyway, but in terms of your own experience, so you said you didn't you never took it seriously when he was talking about that. Um, knowing what you know now, I mean, do you do you regret it all? Uh, having done it, knowing where things led? I don't know that I'd go that far because, I, you know, you only know what you know at the time. Um, you know, m my interactions with him, I mean, I never experienced what I now know people I know experienced, right, in terms of the sexual advances and things like that. Um, but I myself never experienced that. Um, I, I would say one thing about him. He he had no room for silence. He had no room for silence. You know, when you were be in a room with him, right, it would be, he would be putting you on speaker, putting on speaker and putting you in mute, you know, so no one knew you were there when he was talking to somebody, which we now know notoriously he did in all sorts of ways. Uh, or he'd be showing off Shaq's, Shaquille O'Neal's shoes, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> it was never room for silence. And he would, you know, literally he would, you would get the feeling if he was on his way somewhere, who knows where it was, one of his golf courses or something. And he would call. The guy, as we know, never texts, never uses emails, but he would call. And you would get the feeling he's just calling to find somebody who would answer the phone to talk to. He just, he just couldn't be alone with himself. And I, I guess when I think back on it, I, I see that as, as obviously what has, we have all seen is such a part of who he is. And also a sort of person who takes the oxygen out of the room. You know, you don't, you never walked out of an interaction with him feeling better about yourself. Even if he said all kinds of things to you about how wonderful you were and how great you looked and you know how he is, like you're talking mm -hmm. about, somehow you always walked out feeling kind of worse about yourself. Um, and you know, that's just, just a feeling, but I mean, you talk about whoever it is and, you know, he would say things about all kinds of people that were so uh, not kind and often focused on their physical appearance, mm -hmm. including other, you know, television people that we've been talking about. And, um, and you just, you just knew that he would be saying the same things about you if you weren't there. And uh, maybe that's part of it. I mean, this is, there's been so much uh, discussion about what motivates him. And, but the thing that strikes me and the thing that I think is germane to uh, the things that I care about, democracy, for example, uh, is that um, his, his mode of operating in business, and you've, you know, you have a, a good perspective on this, very much foreshadowed his mode of operating in government in that, I don't think he believes in rules and laws and norms and institutions. I think he thinks those are for suckers and that the strong sees what they want, however they can get it. And that that is a that turns out to be a very frightening thing in government. You know, when you're running the United States government, you bring that philosophy uh, to mm -hmm. government because democracies kind of rely on rules and laws and norms and institutions. I think you're you're very right about that. 
And I also think, gosh, I remember one time having a conversation with him. We had gone over and done an interview, and it, you know, The Apprentice was always filmed um, on a different flat floor right. of Trump Tower, where everything was sort of blown out. You know, so you could see all the it, pipes and the ceilings, yeah. and that was part of the thing. And then there'd be the room that was done up like the boardroom. Right. And then when he was running for president, he was using that temporarily as sort of his headquarters. You know, so a lot of stuff was done there. And we were there, and um, and 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 did an interview, and. It was sort of very uh, midway through his process. And I said something like, well, you know, and I had remembered, you know, going there over the years that the uh, ICBC, I'm pretty sure it was, um, Bank of China, International ICBC China, had a lot of floors in his building, you know, because when the elevator would stop, you would see their logo. And I said, you know, now you're running for president, you would presume, right, they're going to be recording every single thing you say, right, every single conversation. And he said, oh, yeah, sure whatever, I'm in real estate. I know that every phone call I've ever had for 20 years has been recorded by somebody. Hmm. And it was just a telling moment because it showed that even with the, you know, when you, you hear the phone calls that came out, you know, regarding Zelensky, he assumes everything is going to be taped. And he is incredibly shrewd about what he says and what he doesn't say in almost every setting. He has incredible awareness about that. And I always found that to be just an interesting commentary on who he was. But there was always this desire that I'm sure, you know, we're all aware of it, right? People want to think, oh, he doesn't think through things. He's, he's not bright. He's not, I, I, I wouldn't agree with any of that. I think that he is incredibly shrewd about what he says and why he says it and when he says it. The suggestion is that he knows how to game the system. Right. In the context of what you're saying, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you ever, did he ever reach out to you uh, over the last, you know, 10 years or whatever? Uh, I mean, based on your previous relationship? I mean, I know he's like a, for, for all of his, uh, all of his assailing of the media, he's a pretty pre- uh, prodigious uh, phone banker of media personalities and you actually had a relationship with him Mm -hmm. there were times but i would say i think that he i don't know i mean you know what i would hear from people who were you know in the room with him frequently you know people that i had known before right who stayed in touch with him you know he sort of felt that um well now you're at cnn and um you perceived it as you're not you're not on my team yeah and did you think he he felt betrayed by that or? Yes, I think so. That's that that, that would be my. That perception. was the message. That was it. Hey, let me ask you something before we leave CNBC and move on to your CNN experience. Tell me what you your assessment. You, you know, you've been criticized by the left at times. You've been considered criticized by the right at times. Probably uh, speaks well of you as a journalist. Tell me what your assessment of the health of our system is. The, of capitalism as an institution, uh, because it's been a tumultuous time. Uh, and, uh, while there's been enormous, uh, wealth generated and success generated, there's also, there is this widening chasm of any, uh, of inequality that's, you know, that we haven't seen since before the great depression. Um, do you how do you assess that and and what do you think the people you covered all those years think about that is there a recognition that 
you know what, this this is unhealthy and we got to figure out what to do about this because we may kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah, I don't know how much of an appreciation for that there is. I, I mean, I certainly think in part some, in part some, right? I mean, definitely you have seen s- people realize, right, that there needs to be some course corrections in any healthy economy. So it doesn't mean you have to say you're, you're not, you're suddenly not capitalists to say that you want that there is the necessity for some course correction. Um, that would be, it would seem part of a healthy democracy, right? Would be having those conversations and doing that. I find it hard, David, to strip out the role of, I don't want to oversimplify it, but the role of social media. Mm-hmm. Because I, I see Donald Trump in many ways, right, as the, as the output of a system rather than the creator of the system. Yeah, absolutely. I agree and with you. It, and, and in that sense, it's social media, it, it brings out a, you know, the polemics, right? It's just one side, you're right, one side or the other. Yeah. There's, there's a great indignation about everything that's said. There's only one way to see it. And, 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 and that, that, when you layer that on top of really serious conversations, right, about let's really talk about what we need to do about inequality. When you can't even start the conversation because, you know, you're either over here or you're over here, mm-hmm. it becomes really hard to make progress. And I feel like too many of the, of the conversations center on social media and social media often can distort what people really feel and it can distort the conversations we really should be having, right? So it both distorts the perspective people have and it distorts the complexity and nuance with which you can talk about a serious issue. And so I don't want to blame it all on that. But I do think that that has permeated things. You know, back, you know, before social media, it was, well, let's talk about how Fox News has enabled there to have, have people get an echo chamber of their political perspective vis-a-vis cable, right? And MSNBC became the counteract, the counter to that. Social media has put that on steroids, Right. And now the disinformation that you are getting when it comes down to any specific story right now, what we're seeing with the with the war, with the Russian attack on Ukraine, it's all it's all related because you you live in an echo chamber and it's an increasingly tinier and tinier and tinier echo chamber, depending on whatever you've surrounded yourself by. And I don't really know the answer on how to get out of that, but I but I'm, 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 I'm deeply worried by it. I, I will admit that. I am deeply worried by it. That echo chamber, first of all, uh, is uh, reflective of a business model for a lot of these social media platforms because, uh, you know, outrage is, is something that keeps people online, that keeps people coming back and, uh, you know, creating these uh, virtual reality silos is, is a profitable uh is a profitable thing. It's also profitable in politics. Uh, you know, the the incentives for actually having thoughtful conversations and resolving a d- a difficult, complex issues uh, are not as great as the incentives of playing to the crowd uh, in whatever your particular tribe happens to be. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, no, we listen. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking and, and worrying about this and. Uh, um, you know, uh, it's b- being re- there's there's not a premium for being thoughtful. There's not a premium for being reasonable. There's not a premium for doing things that uh, aren't uh, helpful, aren't particularly helpful to you personally, politically in the short run, uh, but are really important for the long run. And that's all of that is a 
is a challenge. So you yeah. uh, you made a uh, uh, a shift from CNBC to um, to CNN, um, mm-hmm. and tell me about that and how that came. I, I assume uh, that was right around the time when Jeff Zucker came to CNN, and CNN was moribund at the time. I mean, it was kind of flat on its back. Oh yes, I mean, you know, he could. Just, so I came, um, I guess, about maybe eighteen months before Jeff, and. Um, Yes, I like your description. Flatlands back in Moribund at the time, you know, Piers Morgan was there. And Piers and Anderson and I would sort of, I mean, joke. I don't even want to use the word joke because it was obviously really depressing in terms of the performance. But it was just like, you know, which show would do worse on a given night? You know, it didn't matter what you did. It didn't matter how, how thoughtful or, you know, proud you were of your content. It just was the nadir um, of, of the network. So that is definitely true. Um, but I, I always felt, I mean, I came to CNN because I just had always had this dream of, I, I loved international and I wanted to do international politics and international news and international events. And, you know, I had been to, I remember going to Cairo for the Arab Spring and it was Anderson and I climbing around these tanks to go into a place. And this was actually, you know, very near when I left um, CNBC and NBC. And I just, you know, this is the right place for me to be. So I was, I was never looked back and never had a moment of regret, but it was hard at first. But I, I, in a sense, I. Why why was it hard? Well, just because of the, the numbers were bad. The numbers were bad. And and that's, that's hard. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. That's hard. But it forced us, you know, if you come into CNN and things, you know, changed over time, but if you came into CNN at a time when there was a news event, right. You could kind of ride yeah. the news event, right? And then, and then you would continue. But I came into CNN in between news events, and so there was nothing to ride. So you actually had to sit there and try to figure out what what muscle group to use to do something, right? You try mm-hmm. try this, try that. Let's, and so it was a, you know, it was a creative process that was definitely challenging. Like I said, cause it's not no, no, anyone who tells you, Oh, it doesn't matter if the numbers are bad. You know, you can just do great content that, that I don't buy it when people say that it, it's difficult because you want to do well. You want, you want people to, well, it's not just that you want to do well, do. but there's only yeah. a certain amount of tolerance for bad numbers at, at some point. That's true. So, That's you true. Know, and there yes. was talk at one point of you moving to the morning and so on. And that, I think that was yes. in that period of time. Yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably was when Jeff first came. Yes, and you you fought that off. Well, I remember saying to Jeff when he came, I, you know, and Jeff and I had done stuff for the Today Show for Jeff, and so I think he had thought that that might be something that would you know would work. And I remember saying, you know, I think we really can do something great at seven. I know, I really believe in it. I really think we can do something. And you know, luckily he gave me the chance to do that because that was yeah. still very early on, and so I am grateful to him for that. I assume you were at least as stunned as I was when the announcement came that he was leaving. Mm-hmm. How hard was that? Because he was, I mean, I know, look, I can attest to, I mean, I'm there, I was there, be, I mean, I'm there because of him. Uh, and I think a lot of people would say that. And, you know, I always said, you know, he had the uh, ability to run a global news organization with the same sort of spirit that my favorite city editor used to run my New, the newsroom when I was a young reporter at the Chicago mm-hmm. Tribune, where everybody he he got everybody as exci- uh, you felt he was ex- as excited about what you were doing as you were. 
which yes. is an incredible quality in a leader, particularly in a news organization. Yes, he had that ability and he had the ability to make everybody play up, right? To make everybody play up. I was so actually talking to a photojournalist who I was with in Ukraine and you know, people are talking about Jeff and him leaving and they tell the story about, I believe it was Trump at a presser with I think it was the prime minister. It might have been, I don't know if it was Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand or maybe it was Australia, but, and I apologize for not remembering which one it was. But anyway, they're filming this press conference and they're, you know, there's a series of risers, right? The two podiums in the front, a series of risers, and the CNN photojournalist is at the, you know, far left or the far right. And they film it. And immediately after, there's a call from Jeff to the photojournalist. Yeah. Why was our shot? Why was our shot not as good as the ones in the center? And it didn't come off like he was mad at them. It came off to them that he took the time to watch the presser, notice the shot, want the better shot, get the phone number of the photojournalist and call a guy. And the guy tells the story, you know, sort of about how that made them always play up and want to be their best, right? That the takeaway from that call and the way it was handled wasn't what an asshole. The takeaway was, wow, he cares and our shot matters. And that was what he brought to the table. And it was on every single level. And it's funny because then I mentioned to Jeff this conversation. And he said, well, I don't remember that conversation, but that does sound exactly like something I would do. <laughs> I presume because there were so many of those conversations. He had dozens of conversations a day like that. That's right. Uh, That's so right. Uh, not surprising mm-hmm. he wouldn't remember that one. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. When you went to CNN, it also was a time in your life where you uh, you got married and you started having a family. And I'm going to ask this question and I'm going to get lots of comment, negative comment uh, for asking it. But um, that strikes me as super hard. And it's uh, it's harder for a woman than a man. I mean, it just I just think it is. Uh, to uh, to build what you've built in the last 10 years at the same time that you're building a family. And I'm wondering how you balance those things. Well, I am not insulted by the question because I, I agree with you. Um, yes, it, 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 it's hard. It's hard. But I mean, look, I, I, I say this in the context of I have three healthy children and I have a job that I adore. And I realized that that combination and that, you know, I, I understand that I am, you know, unbelievably lucky in so many ways. Um, but it, but it, it is, it is hard. I mean, I missed my daughter's first birthday because I had to be in Cleveland for the Republican national convention. Um, and that was, that was really hard. Yeah. Um, my sister, actually, one of my sisters came and, 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 you know, spent that week with the kids. Um, my husband was here too, but she came and that was with her kids. And that was really helpful. Um, and I just remember, I mean, there's just logistical things, you know, you know, just to, you know, you're, you're dealing with breastfeeding and then you're traveling everywhere. So I found this company milk stork that if you're domestic, will ship your milk home. So like I'm in every place for every debate and every, you know, primary and, you know, shipping this stuff home. And then I, I, I had to ship from um, one time I had to dry ice back from Dubai and one time from Paris. Cause I went to Paris right after my second child was born. She was two months old and for the, um, you know, the, the horrific Bataclan attack. And um, 
just remember, you know, while you're there and you're working 22 hours a day and you're finding a way to store the milk in such a way that it could be preserved so that you could bring it home and finding the dry ice. And um, it turns out in Paris, they don't, they don't use coolers like the picnics for Paris. When you go to picnic in the, in the park, they don't really use coolers. Well, I'm thinking, okay, I can just go to Carrefour and get a cooler. Um, so anyway, these, it just, just little things like that, but, but on the macro level, um, it is because you just, you know, you want, there's nothing more important in life than your kids. And there's no yeah. time that is more joyful than the time you spend with them. And, and yet who you are professionally, you know, in, is important to, 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 to what you want them to see and, and, and who you want them to be. So, but it is, they are the most important thing in my life. And, and that, of course, is, is true for any parent. So I said earlier that you had this, um, that you, you had this in some ways storybook life. And yet I think the thing that strikes people who watch you is that you have great empathy and everyone remembers who watches you remembers the interview you did with the, the woman who lost her husband during the, uh, during the pandemic and that you became quite emotional in that uh, interview and everybody, <laughs> frankly, watching did. Where does that come from? I should ask you another question, which is, I say you had a storybook life. Has anything really horrendous happened to you? I mean, is there, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life? Hmm. I guess that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, everyone's life has its own, its own imperfections. And I guess I've been incredibly lucky. I'm not really a religious person, so I don't want to use the word blessed out of line. But I have been incredibly lucky to be able to make of my life what I wanted to. And I think when I see, you know, when you see what's happening in, in, in Ukraine and you meet people or you see someone like Maura Lewinger, that's, that's the woman you're yes, referring yes, to. Yes, yes, yes. And then, and life takes something from you. I don't know. I, I think none of us, no one can help but be incredibly moved by the, the loss and suffering that people go through. Has having children impacted you in that way? I, I, I watched you during that interview, and you're she's uh, uh, you know sort of your age, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I I almost saw you thinking uh, about what it would be like for to be in that position, what it'd be like for her kids. Has that changed you? Yes. Oh yes, it did. I mean, I, there, there's no question about it having, and I, I feel that this is true for everyone. When you become a parent, you know, you don't, I was trying to say, I forgot who I was having this conversation with the other day. It doesn't change who you are. It's not that you become a different person, but you become a bigger person and you become a more vulnerable person in different ways. And I think that's what being a parent is about. You have a more acute sense of what there is to lose in life. And you have an actual physical awareness that life is not about you and that you're just a, a stop in the path, right? But before you have kids, it's very much about you, right? What me, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What is it about? You know, that it's very easy to be in that sort of thinking. And then when you have children, all of a sudden that changes. And I think it makes, it, you know, I, I feel that it has made me a much, it, it has made, it is, it has broadened me as a human being. I was curious when you were doing that interview, and it was very clear you were trying to hold it together. Were you uncomfortable 
with your own display of emotion. I, I mean, there's a certain mm. sort of a- anchor person yeah. thing, you know. I'm not in any way endorsing. I think empathy is such an important thing. Uh, but uh, what were you thinking when you were saying the thing where you think, holy smokes, I'm losing it here on national television? Um, I guess I did a little bit, but I, I felt, and maybe COVID did this for all of us. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say COVID, but I mean, you know, it was just, everybody was vulnerable and everybody was uncertain and everybody was afraid. And I, and I, and I felt just as a, as a world, we were facing such loss. And then obviously within that, there are these individuals who are facing, you know, the, the most incredible and painful loss a human can face, right? The loss of a, a spouse or a child or, and, um, yeah, it just came upon me. It just came upon me, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, and I did try to control it, I guess, but not because I was afraid of it, but because I, I really felt that if I, I didn't control it, I really would. I felt that I would be truly bawling and it wasn't my place. It, she was there and telling the story and, it, and it's her loss, you know, and she was in, remarkably in control. It was sort of a who am I to, to be the one to 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 feel this this emotion when she was able to handle it so well i guess would have been for lack of anything else was sort of what i was thinking you brought that same sensibility to this coverage in ukraine and uh talk about first of all you asked to go is that right you wanted to go it wasn't yes. like someone assigned you to go you wanted yeah. to go mm-hmm. uh and I, I know this is akin to your interest in being around the world when these things, but tell me, tell me, uh, what it was like to, to be there. And, uh, you, you started talking about how surreal it was that one day everything's normal and the next day there's war, but you also came into contact with a lot of people, including a lot of parents mm-hmm. and mothers and wives leaving their husbands to fight. And tell me how that experience affected you. You know, as I was saying, it was, it was incredible to see a place change. And it was it was a place under incredible stress and tension coming in, but it was a place that was a normal place. People were going out, stores were open, people were going to school, people were going to work, right? And then that changed so suddenly. Um, but it was just, oh my gosh, there were so many instances, David, but there was one where I, I was in a bathroom with a woman. We had been actually trying to go across the border. So this was um, uh, when we were, you know, leaving the country and the border was, you know, 30 miles to the border, people were walking. Right. And it was at best 60 hours. I think it took several days for some people who ultimately started where we started. So we had turned around and we were going to go to another border and all the gas stations are out of gas, but there were some sort of, you know, rest area places that were kind of functioning not that far away, which was, by the way, incredible. They were going and getting money out of ATMs and they were getting privy out of ATMs. They were not getting dollars, which is such stark contrast to what you saw in Moscow, right? Where they were going to ATMs because they didn't want rubles. <laughs> so there's the confidence and the belief that the Ukrainians had in their country and themselves is, was, was quite inspirational. Um, but I, I as at one of these rest stops, and I'm in the bathroom with the woman. So of course I start talking to her and she has two children. I would, they were both girls. I would have maybe six and four or five and seven, right around there. And her English was absolutely perfect. And so she's talking about how they'd gone to the border and they waited, 
you know, two days to get out. And then when they got to the border, their husband, who, her husband, who had um, work papers in Poland, which is sort of how it used to work, right? You'd have to have a work paper because a lot of Ukrainians would work in Poland, that they found out that that wasn't acceptable. You know, you have to be a dual citizen in order to leave if you were a man. Work papers didn't count. So he had to stay because he was between the ages of 18 and 60. So they decided to turn around as a family. And, um, and she's telling me this and she just starts weeping. I mean, just weeping, you know, sort of. And when I use that word, I mean, you know, sobbing would be energetic. Weeping was just the exhaustion that she was feeling. And, you know, you start to weep yourself. I mean, this is this, they had a normal life and it was just, and it's gone. And then you're sitting for me watching the little girls. And I saw this in so many children. And I think it was part of what made it so difficult to deal with emotionally was just that they were sort of pulling on their mom, like, Oh, can we just end this conversation and leave as if they were in the department store and they'd run into, you know, a friend, you know, not, not that their lives had just been upended, just the way normal children would act in a normal situation. Even though you know that seeing your mother weep like that is deeply upsetting for a child at that age. Um, and there were just, you know, so many instances of that and, and people just willingly, willingly and with pride separating as families because that was what needed to happen, right? Because the men needed to stay. And, you know, I didn't, didn't meet anybody who was trying to find a way out or cheat the system or anything like that. Nothing. And it was just so orderly. You know, you think of it in a situation where suddenly your life is ripped apart and you're heading for the border and there's these interminable lines and checkpoints and military and tires stacked up and, and people were waiting in line. People were waiting in line. People were going to run out of gas and people were waiting in line. Somebody would fall asleep at the wheel because it would t- one checkpoint literally took six and a half hours and it was only a couple miles. And people would fall asleep and then it would move four car lengths and nobody ever cut around and nobody ever beeped. They just waited. And it was, it was a pretty incredible example of human fortitude. When you're watching the scenes now and you're reporting on them every night, it's obviously getting worse. Putin's, uh, uh, as as he gets more frustrated, he gets more brutal. Um, What goes through your head having interacted with uh, so many people there? I just think about, I mean, on, on a small basis, I think about how much time the kind of constant feeling of um, it's like excruciating boredom because you're waiting and you're waiting all day and there's nothing, oh, there's nothing, right? You're waiting. You don't know what's going to happen. And then when it happens, it's sudden and fearsome, uh, you know, or you hear an air, air raid siren and, you know, they're, they're going and they're sitting in basements for hours and hours, days in some cases, you know, what they're actually going through. And, you know, it disturbs me, David, I see the numbers, right? So, so the UN is saying about 3 million people have left. And I don't know how many people were out of the country at the time of, of, of the actual invasion, but it certainly wasn't many because the US had been telling them to leave, right? Because um, the Ukrainian government was telling them not to leave and that this right. was not something to worry about. So I don't know exactly the number of people who were in the country, but the population of the country is 45 million and about 3 million people have left. Even if you assume another couple of million or a few million were out, think about how many people are still in that country dealing with what, what's, what's going on in the East and, you know, words can't describe it, right? I want to tax your expertise for a second on uh, how this ends or how you think it ends and on the efficacy of some of the economic, this is an area of your expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, how effective can 
sanctions be? Uh, and are there is there a limit to uh, to this uh, to the the sort of do you run out of pedals economic pedals that you can hmm. press here? You're right on both things. One, they're incredibly powerful. The sanctions thus far. Two, there is still more that can be done, but you do run out of pedals. Um, I guess it's you know I sort of think about it in two ways. One, how effective can they be? China's just so important here, David, because obviously one barrel of oil looks like another. And Iran has known that for a long time, right? You just have to get them on a tanker. You can sell them at a discount to the regular price, but you can still get paid. And when prices have doubled, you know, it's like surged, like we've seen, right? Russia can afford to sell a lot less right. and make just as much money. So how do you prevent them from doing that? Well, oil is priced in dollars. They can't deal in dollars. Well, that's why China is so important because China needs oil and China can buy the oil buy the oil. They can buy it in Remnibi, which obviously their currency. Russia can use that Remnibi to buy things from China. Right? If China wants to actively help, they can help. They can't, they can't stop the entire impact, but they can be a significant player. So I, I think that's just an important thing to keep an eye on of what they, what they choose to do and how they choose to act, um, separate from what they may end up saying. And obviously they're you know, trying to have it every, every which way right now. Um, but I also think about once when I was in Iran covering the sanctions, when they were incredibly severe and they had become much more effective, right? It was actually hard to get Iranian money in Dubai. And the t- last time when I had gone in, it was very easy, even though you technically weren't supposed to, but it had become hard. The sanctions were being enforced. It's working. And in Tehran, I'm not saying the, the you know, Ermina Jildo Zenia store was full, but it was there and there were some people in it, right? The Revolutionary Guards were still able to function. They still had their fancy cars that were coming in from Qatar, their Mercedes. But the regular people were talking about watermelon prices and tomato prices and how they doubled and they couldn't afford it. And it just makes me, reminds me of, you know, in Russia for the sanctions to be effective at this point, they have to impact regular people and they are. But when they impact regular people, you don't know how regular people are going to perceive it. Are they going to perceive it as let's get rid of our government? Are they going to perceive it as, well, let's get on board with our government because this is being done to us by somebody else. And that's the big question that we don't know the answer to. Yeah. You mentioned the unsettling nature of the pandemic. You have covered on a nightly basis, a really tumultuous time in our country's history, this Ukraine episode, which is a lot about a lot more than Ukraine and holds out a threat that's larger than Ukraine is another. How do you personally process this period of time? How has it changed us? How has it changed you? Does it change your outlook for the future as you look at your kids? How is history going to remember this period? Well, I I don't know how history will remember it. I don't even pretend to know that, but it has changed me. It has changed me. And I remember, um, you know, you talk about the financial crisis. I remember those moments of fear. I'm sure you remember it too. You know, when you- Oh my goodness, yeah. And Tim, you know, Tim Geithner had said something about, um, you know, that but maybe your ATM card wouldn't work. You know, maybe there would be no money. And I remember the fear of sitting and saying, what would happen? I mean, I live in New York City. What would happen in, in, in a day or two if we didn't have access to the very basic things that define modern life? ATMs being one of them. And, and it was a sense of, of fear and that things, everything that I had 
taken for granted as part of my life could go away. This, this complete um, unsettled feeling, right? And I'm having that again now. And I think we're all having that again now, whether it be uh, the images are so haunting and the, the threat of escalation and what it would mean, uh, you know, from, from a pure nuclear perspective, something the world's never faced before. And it's that same feeling of a great unknown and a feeling of impermanence and fear. And I think we're, we're all feeling it. And um, I guess I feel that it's good to not be alone in that feeling. But as the parent of kids, yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I always thought the whole point was to leave a better world for them than the world that we had. And, and it makes me nervous. It makes me really nervous. And, um, you know, and talking to them about it. How do I talk to them about it? How do I explain it to them at their different ages and they're young, but, but they have a lot of questions and they want to know. And, you know, they knew I was in Ukraine for two weeks and they kept thinking I was coming home and I didn't come home. And so they, 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 they were watching a lot and processing a lot. And what do you say to them when you don't know yourself? And I guess this has happened in every, every other generation, right? <laughs> so um, it would be a lot of hubris to think that we're alone. But we're now having those same feelings of, of fear and impermanence. Yeah, I think the hubris uh, was in thinking that somehow we could avoid these kinds of yeah. uh, challenges that previous generations have experienced. But I'll tell you one thing as we go. It does more than anything underscore the importance of having people like you who are willing to go out and tell these stories and give people a sense of what actually is happening. I mean, Russians... Uh, don't have that opportunity yeah. right now. And we should cherish those things. I mean, a lot has been said about media, but so foundational to our democracy is the ability to have a free media and have people tell these stories that we have to hear and that they're, and to have people who are willing to go out and do it, sometimes risking their lives, as some of our colleagues at CNN are doing That's right. Uh, right now. But I, I appreciate you and I appreciate the... Um, uh, the integrity with which you do uh, what you do every night. And it couldn't be more important than it is right now. So, Aaron, it's great to be with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And for your, you've got a, you've got a great gift at these conversations. <laughs> so it's wonderful to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 